This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk, and financial solutions. Bundy's called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Well, Ben Griffiths, mate, thanks very much for coming back on Talk Your Book. Your recent track record's been, uh, been incredible on this show, so I hope you're not feeling the pressure. You gave us Linus Corp, uh, which turned into about a, a four or five Xer, and, um, and Virtus Health, which has had takeover offers since you mentioned it. So uh, I hope you're not feeling that pressure, but on a serious note, really appreciate you coming back on and, and having a chat to us today. Great to be here, Chris. Um, pressure is what this game is all about, mate. We live, we live and breathe uh, stock calls every day. So coming on to talk your books, uh, always a bit of fun and um, just... Just another day in the market, mate, to be honest. <laughs> mate, I thought we'd start. We'll get to your stock in a minute, but you've got so much experience in markets and there's a little bit of turmoil uh, going around. So I thought maybe we could start with your, your macro outlook, if you like, and, and how you're seeing markets more broadly before we get into your individual stock pick in a minute. Yeah, you're right. Markets are topical right now. There is so much going on and we've had an extraordinary bull run. Um, and, I, and I guess what we're now sailing into, if you set aside the geopolitical events of the Russian and Ukrainian action, uh, because as much as that is an issue, um, it's the knock-on ec- economic effects of that that are really um, will really caught investors' attention. I think the the the, um, the market's prime focus has been what the Fed does on March 15, 16 at their meeting. Some expectations for a while there would get a 50 basis point hike out of the US. Looks like given the uncertainties and volatilities that the world is in at the moment, we'll get 25 basis points and the market is thinking there's five or six of those uh, in quick succession. So that'll be the beginning will be um, accommodation being removed and then we'll move into the quantitative tightening phase where we expect to get um, some updates from the from the Fed around July and probably an implementation um, in, in August. So basically shrinking the Fed balance sheet. Now, I think that's where the market is getting somewhat focused on. It's just come off the back of a a decent reporting season in the US. So I think um, anxiety, as you'd expect around rate tightenings, um, is what's probably playing havoc with, with investors. You only need to look at some of the sentiment indicators in the US, the AAAII indicator, which is an indicator that I look at quite closely. I never leave home without it. Um, the, the, the bullish print on that is now down to about 20% of respondents to this survey are now bullish. That's a very, very low level. And traditionally, when that confidence or that investor sentiment survey gets down below 20%, there's almost certainly a rally in stocks coming. So I like the positioning of sentiment, which is too negative right now. The reporting season was just fine, actually, um, the other day. We've seen some credit spread, what we would call normalisation. Credit spreads have been sort of coming back from extreme levels, and that would naturally unsettle investors. Uh, That's also somewhat an outworking of of quantitative tightening. And my old favourite is, of course, equity risk premiums, which both here and in the United States are quite generous. That is, investors who are contemplating stock investment for a medium to longer term perspective will be handsomely rewarded if buying stocks at current levels. So there's a bit going on there. I mean, locally, we've had a reporting season that really, pound for pound, companies reporting um, have have done done a pretty good job. Large caps have had a good reporting season. Smalls has been have been okay. There have been plenty of beats in, 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 in the big end of the market. The banks have delivered uh, nice earnings. Australian corporates are in good health. 
um, some of the share price reactions and volatility, which I know you've talked to on uh, on, on on some of your recent uh, rela recent releases, some of the volatility in stock prices um, is probably what surprised us. There's been some quite outsized moves. Um, and, and the other thing that I find quite amazing is the market has quickly moved to quality. Uh, year to date, small caps that are profitable, or profitable small caps where we like to hunt, they're down about 5% year to date. Unprofitable small caps are down about 28%. So there's been a very distinct shift in market sentiment and, and, and market appetite towards those companies that are profitable, booking profits and, and, and looking like having a reasonable six to 12 months versus the fizzed up, somewhat hot and frothy, uh, unprofitable names, which by the way, have been all ago for the last two to three to four years. So there's been somewhat of a rotation there in, in what investors are now looking for. You're seeing that in the resource sector too, aren't you? I think you're seeing producers being valued uh, quite handsomely often, but those explorers or, or companies that are still needing capital before they get into production, they're not benefiting from the rising prices uh, often at all. Well, what's interesting, Chris, is the, the most recent round of quarterly results in the resource, the resource companies, we, see probably, we saw probably the worst reporting season in seven years for those names. Um, so we're getting very buoyant metal prices. Mm. Uh, we're getting reasonable volumes, but of course, there's the there's the impost of uh, higher costs, the higher cost of operating, trying to source labour and so on has been wreaking havoc with our, with our resource companies. We still think that uh, materials names and energy names for that matter are still a, um, they're not done yet. Um, they're, they're still in a sweet spot of the market. Um, so we, we still like those names. Um, if for no reason other than market consensus uh, um, um, minerals or metals um, assumptions are way below spot prices at the moment. So most of our producers are come some form of upgrade, earnings upgrade, whether we like it or not. It's just the market has been far too conservative and spot prices have gotten away far too quickly and have gone a lot further than I think even the, even the most bullish uh, analysts might have expected. So there's plenty of juice in the tank for resource names, which is, what, which is a part of the market that we're, um, we're active in at the moment. And what stock did you want to dig into today? Look, you, you, you built me up on a bit of an intro there <laughs> on having to deliver a stock to you that was going to work, uh, a, a, a stock that I feel pretty confident about, especially after a couple of um, nice, um, nice calls in the past. I thought we'd spend a little bit of time this morning with the time available um, talking about a small cap darling. It's, it's actually even a micro cap, really, in the scheme of things, and that's Beacon Lighting which of course is a business I think that'll be well familiar to your, uh, to your readers and listeners. And so tell me structurally in that market, what's happened recently over the last few years? Uh, one of the catalysts, if you like, that's made Beacon a more attractive proposition. Yeah, well, you, I mean, you, you start with a business um, that's been around for a long time. I mean, Ian Robinson opened the start of this business essentially from a single store in Paran in 1967 and grew it out. But um, to, to specifically cut to your, to the chase and the point of your question, a couple of years ago, many of us will remember the Masters hardware chain, which was Woolley's idea of taking on Bunnings and building out a hardware network. Well, they, they got on underway with that and did a, and did a probably in the end, a ham-fisted job of growing that out. Uh, you add that to Bunnings and you had a couple of heavyweights that were essentially declaring war on almost all category of hardware and home fitting. Um, with the demise of Masters, Bunnings kind of might attend to a less extent. They've got the market to themselves. They've been a little more differentiating in where they want to specialise. 
and the lighting section and the fan, fan, the ceiling fan section, but in particular the lighting section of Bunnings and Mitre 10 have been very much sort of underweighted or de-weighted in the scheme of their retail offering. So all of a sudden, unless you want to buy some fairy lights uh, or fluorescent tubes, um, if you want something a bit better than that for the house, um, you're finding yourselves literally having to go to Beacon, who carry the merchandise, who carry the range, who've got the expertise. Um, and, and we're seeing Beacon, whether it um, either by, by, by design or by, um, by, by sheer evolution of a market, are actually now growing their importance in their market share. And we think that's a very important structural change. Can't see Bunnings going back to fussing around with light fittings and, and, um, and, and exotic pieces of uh, lamp and so on. So there's been an important structural change and it all started with the demise of Masters. And what are their different business units? Well, there's a couple of areas. Traditionally, Beacon, of course, is a, is a, is a lighting retailer, lighting and ceiling fan retailer, um, on, on, not on everyone's street corner by any stretch. Um, but, they're, um, but they are um, uh, in, in most uh, major, major shopping areas, 118 stores in total across Australia, both uh, metropolitan and, uh, and, and a regional setting. Worth noting that they said they'd be able to grow out to about 171 stores on what they know today. But having a closer look at the regional footprint, I think they've decided that number probably is closer to 185 without putting too much science into it. So they've got a growing network but it's, it's essentially um, a lighting and ceiling fan uh, supplier, um, brand management business, vertically integrated. They're all their own, more or less their own brand. So they, they book a full vertical margin on every, on every light sale. Um, they've done a great job of managing the business and allocating capital. They announced a terrific result. So that's the Australian retail business, which has been the engine, the engine room. But along comes, um, I guess, as markets evolve, um, opportunities develop, and there's two important parts to the Beacon story that, um, that are evolving fairly quickly. The first is the trade opportunity, where a typical Beacon store might be approaching 20% of its turnover is given over to trade. It's looking like they're going to devote greater resourcing to the trade market. Good Beacon stores can do up to 40% of their turnover um, as a trade business. And that'll involve a trade counter opening a bit earlier and servicing the trade um, they've, they've recruited a new general manager who used to work at Clipsal, who, of course, are the electrical, um, uh, electrical um, supplies business. Um, and he's come on board to actually smarten them up and get serious. And essentially, Beacon are aiming to do what Reese does. They're going to go behind the wall and provide a lot of the um, electrical componentry, other than lights and, and bulbs and fans, um, that you would get from a wholesaler. So they're going into that part of the market. And it appears to me on my research that that's been quite well received. About 48,000 trade members now are making their way to, to Beacon stores. So there's an enormous opportunity to grab more of the Sparky's dollar, uh, if you will. So that's the trade opportunity. And that could be quite substantial, we think, over time. Um, and then the, the other section, um, important, uh, which we think will emerge before too long will be probably the second biggest part of Beacon, and that is their international opportunity. They're, they're no strangers to international business. They have, um, they've, they've been, Ian has had a couple of goes at doing something internationally uh, for a while now, but they've landed on a, a, a formula. And in the most recent results we saw, we had international contribution up about 65%. So essentially their efforts internationally have been ceiling fans, ceiling fans um, into Hong Kong and then into China and into, into Europe out of Hong Kong. But they've now got themselves a beachhead in the United States. 
And they've got a B2C site in the United States as well, where they're marketing and pushing their ceiling fan products. And shortly we think they'll introduce their lighting products. Now the turn on for that very simply is the United States market is massively fragmented, hugely so. The total market for ceiling fans is about $2 billion in the US. Yeah, that's worth having. But the real opportunity is the lighting market, the United States lighting market is estimated to be worth about $42 billion per annum. There's 14,000 lighting stores scattered across the United States. So it's very fragmented, mum and, mum and sort of um, mum and pop type operations. There's only one chain that's, that looks like a bit like a beacon and it's called Lamps Plus. It's got 39 stores across the United States. So there's an enormous opportunity for them to get the B2C right, um, to, to work up the ceiling fan proposition, and then to actually push out into the broader lighting market. And I think just as Beacon have enjoyed here, it's that trend to premiumization. It's taking a standard light fitting and actually giving people something that's a bit more designer friendly, a bit more aesthetic. They're gonna sort of premiumize how lights and lamps um, and fittings are done in the United States. Do they expect consumer taste is going to be the same in the United States as Australia, or will they have to manufacture a different unique light for that market? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And that'll be something that I'm only a fund manager, Chris. Um, I'm, no, uh, I'm no marketer, um, but, but, um, but I'm, I would be stunned if they weren't doing market research on what will work and what won't work over there. So they'll do their, their, their various testings of products in the United States that might just start with the acquisition of a small chain. Uh, they might end up doing, doing and buying one or two stores and actually getting a feel themselves for what the consumer, how he thinks and, and what he or she thinks. So we'll, we'll, we'll see what comes of it, but international, it's already a substantially a substantial uh, performing business uh, with enormous opportunity. And um, they're going about the process of light licensing the beacon name in the, in the US state by state. Um, and uh, the early indications are that they're approaching it in, in the business-like way you'd expect Ian and Glenn to do. I thought the online numbers read well from their results yesterday. Were you impressed with that? Do you think that can continue to grow from here or do you, do you see the bricks and mortar being more important or both those things continuing to work in tandem uh, in the future? Yeah, I think I saw the number, Chris. It might have been 15% of retail sales were, uh, were online. Um, that's quite a, quite a healthy number given... Lighting sort of feels the sort of category where you go down with your partner and you actually go to the light shop and you actually want to see it on and, and have a look at it. Um, so I, I never really thought that lighting would lend itself um, to an online medium, but it does. And under a click and collect basis, it, it seems to be going well. So I think um, I think the, the, the technical nature of lighting, it kind of does require a showroom of sorts. And I think that's what your, that's what your standard store um, provides. It provides product, obviously, but it provides that sort of showroom feeling. Um, so I think they'll pursue both. And I think to date, they've shown that they, they can do both quite well. And I mean, these guys are never going to be innovators, but you don't need to be an innovator. As long as you are providing a retail model that services customers, that has pricing power, um, that delivers good merchandising outcomes, I think that's going to be enough. We've seen it so far, and, I, and I'm backing these guys to get it right. I'm interested to get your view on, say, how the housing cycle will affect Beacon. I could see the school of thought where interest rates look like they're going to rise and, and that'll potentially soften house price growth. And some could take the view that that, that will be a headwind for Beacon. But there's also that, that term you already used was the premiumisation 
of people's houses and where someone's house is not only just their house, it's also their, their office because they're working from home two, three days or five days a week. They're spending more time in their home because they might be going out to restaurants less. Do you think that change around the home is, is secular and going to be la lasting longer than even after uh, the COVID days finish? Or how's your view in how the housing market can and will affect Beacon? Well, there's, there's no doubt that um, the success of this business is related to domestic spending and confidence around the home. Um, I suppose um, Australians have got pretty good at looking at um, median house prices and auction clearance rates. Um, certainly it's an obsession of uh, those living on the East Coast, which is probably most of your, uh, most of your readership and your viewers. But um, I'd, be, I'd be kidding myself if I said that these guys are immune, that Beacon will be immune to the housing cycle. They, 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 they won't be. Um, but I'd just like to say that um, there's, a, there's a, quite a distance between uh, slowing clearance rates, uh, slowing housing prices, and uh, reductions in even new build activity uh, or renovation and decorating activity. So there's quite a lag between that. Um, sure, if the housing market uh, takes a cathartic shock because interest rates rise rapidly, uh, housing prices pull back, um, um, unemployment rate goes up, you can paint a scenario where household spending will slow down and these guys would naturally uh, fall foul of that. But I do think that um, we've seen over, over time, uh, certainly for the last 15 years, that spending on renovations, home decorating is, is particularly resilient. They may well have been over-trading uh, during COVID where to your point, people spent a lot more time at home and have set up home offices. But there's a certain resiliency, resiliency around what uh, Beacon are doing. Um, it's not like uh, lights are a particularly expensive part of a renovation. Um, um, so I guess the pricing of, um, of, of a new ceiling fan or, or light fitting is um, probably falls within most people's budgets. Um, but of course, you can dial it up. You can go crazy, as, um, as no doubt you, uh, you'd be aware. So look, I think, yes, they are. They will be captive to the cycle, but there are a lot more defensive qualities around these guys. And the cycle itself doesn't have instantaneous impacts. It takes quite a period of time to, 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 uh, to play out. So... So um, I'm aware of it, I'm cognizant of it. it it's gone into my thinking, um, but I'm pretty relaxed with the exposure they might have. And talk to me about their 50% share of the, the property trust that they have. How does that work? Um, who's the other 50% owned by? And what sort of value are you putting on that? Yeah, and it's an interesting thing. I've always said that Beacon Lighting, um, they are, they're a tremendous allocators of capital. Um, they, they'll quit businesses that aren't meeting requisite returns. Um, they'll only venture into, um, into a store or a concept when they've done their homework. And that goes uh, equally for um, their, their approach to this property trust that they've uh, recently established. It's a 50-50 joint venture between Beacon and Ian Robinson, the, the, the major shareholder and, um, and group chairman. And the whole idea is, um, as, as, as I understand it, is to, for Beacon to be able to put their foot on some strategic... Um, signature stores, um, larger format, where they will not be captive to landlords and, the, and their users attempts to raise rents and, and lease costs to ridiculous levels. Um, there'll be a far more generous treatment handed out from the property trust to Beacon as a, as, a, as a tenant. So the plan there is to essentially put their foot on sites and they may be co-tenant. You might have a um, Toys R Us next door, and you might have a you might have um, super cheap auto down uh, as a part of the complex, 
that they could well be in that format. And the plan, of course, is to carefully grow those out, whether they buy existing sites or develop new ones. I'm not exactly sure how much development activity the trust will do, or whether it's going to buy existing sites. So I'll need to speak to Ian to get further up the curve on that. But it's a pretty sensible, I think, allocation of capital for strategic sites and whether they, 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 they take this model regionally or whether they keep it strictly to the CBD. And I don't know where this goes, Chris, in terms of down the track, do they bring external investors in? So other third-party investors can come in and actually do some of the heavy lifting. Um, does, does Beacon itself sell down equity um, and or dilute through that process while external investors come in? I mean, is it floated? Who knows what form it takes? Um, other than I think it's a pretty smart move. Um, and, and you tend to, as I said, they've proven to be very astute allocators of capital. I think this is a uh, it's a, it's it's small it's small beer in the scheme of things right now. Um, it's always quite exciting when you see the, the announcement they picked another property up or they've got their eye, their mind around doing something on another property, and you can see that whatever they do will be methodical, it'll be well thought out. And um, what I like what I like about Beacon is and the management team. Um, it's it's Glenn, it's Ian as chairman, and it's the other brothers and sisters that we don't even hear about who are in other parts of the business. Just a very methodical approach to um, to fortifying the business, and that's probably what they're doing of this, as well as um, creating economic value there. You can see the links to, I mean, the Bunnings Warehouse Property Trust has was, was been a successful offshoot from, from West Farmers. And then you can see the Reese influence, it feels like, with both the trade and then the, the US expansion. You can almost see them picking the best part of different businesses that have some comparable likeness and um, sort of implementing that in their own way. Is that sort of a fair... Summary? Oh, I, I, I've no doubt they've been motivated by the success of that structure. I've no doubt about it. The other thing I like about what they're doing is uh, the Robinsons are patient. Um, they're patient wealth accumulators. Um, they're, they're not trying to build this out in a hurry. Um, they'll take a business, a business-like approach to sites uh, that come up, um, sites that they think Beacon should be engaged with, um, and Beacon should should take take as a as as a, as a large format location. So. But there's no doubt the, the very clever way in which uh, West Farmers have managed the property exposure for Bunnings, um, that won't have been lost on Ian, and it certainly won't have been lost on the board of Beacon. So I think you're right. I think uh, it's tacit recognition that the Bunnings, um, Bunnings Property Trust model works, works well. And so just to round it off, finish off with, with some of the numbers, what's their PE, their return on equity? Looks like it's, it's been really solid over a number of years. Um, maybe start with those two and, and we'll go from there. Yeah, yeah. Well, at the PE, it's about on consensus numbers about sixteen and a half times, which is uh, which is uh, um, broadly in line with the small cap market at the moment, which is trading at around sixteen times. So you're getting a a what I would consider a well managed growth name for a market multiple. Um, the market is uh, wondering whether we've seen the best of near term trading, and so there's a fairly flat earnings per share profile sketched out. For, for 20 for 22 uh, and and 23 um, analysts will try and interpolate that we've seen a peak in housing to your point earlier and therefore 23 might pull backwards from 22 and 24 might be lower again that's all conjecture um, hard to work those numbers out of course but you're playing a market multiple for um, a, a, a strong year a strong first half and perhaps um, a, a moderately strong second half. Um, but it's really the medium to longer term initiatives that aren't being captured in that multiple. Um, 
I think with the growth initiatives, if you think the US international expansion is worth, worth something, if you think the trade business can become Reese-like in its characteristics, um, and you think a property trust um, will come to something, then a market multiple for a business with so many growth levers um, is ridiculous. So I make the, the case that it's fundamentally undervalued, will be captive to cycle, but will grow earnings handsomely. Um, I think a sustainable earnings per share growth for this business, given the fact to your point, it's got a 30 odd percent ROE and pays out about half the earnings, 40% of its earnings each year. It's a 10 to 12% sort of sustainable grower. That's what I think it'll do. And that's before we really fizz up what's going on in the US and in international business. So I just think investors are, investors are getting it cheap. Um, don't worry about where the stock price has come from. It's had a reasonable rise. Look at the multiple that you're being asked to pay and you're just being asked to pay market for real earnings. Beautiful, Ben. It's, as always, it's a ripping story and you, uh, you talked to it so eloquently. So I really appreciate your time and uh, it's a, a great one to watch. Thanks very much. Good on you, Chris. All the best. Cheers. This episode of Talk Your Book was proudly brought to you by Honan, who go beyond a transactional insurance broker to deliver better outcomes for their clients. If you're enjoying Talk Your Book, make sure you subscribe to Chris Judd Invest. Nothing you hear today should be considered investment advice. Please do your own research and seek out your own financial advisor before committing any capital to these markets.